Welcome to the HFR Podcast. I'm Dan Montgomery, and in a great magical switcheroo, like Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee at the height of their powers, I'm in the hot seat today. However, I am joined by my glamorous assistant, Stu Moore, taking his place on the panel today. How are you doing, Stu? I'm spot on, mate. I'm spot on. That's magic. <laughs> and who's your favourite magician, if I can ask? Um, oh, it's a tough question. I'd go with David Blaine. Just there's something about that box skit that he did that's um, really primal, isn't it? And throwing eggs at him and, and just all that hate he got. I loved it. Fair play. I always like when Paul Daniels went on white, uh, wife swap and with uh, Vanessa Feltz, nonetheless. <laughs> said, she'd, uh, yes. said she'd be wearing a white chiffon scarf. Anyway, <laughs> sacrificing his Sunday in front of I'm a Celebrity. It's our own king of the jungle, Ollie Scholes. How are you doing, Ollie? Oh, great, thank you very much. Fantastic. Lovely to see you both and also hear you, which is what our what our listeners will do. Um, it's been a bit sporadic from us. We haven't recorded much recently because we've got jobs and global time zones to contend with. However, the football hasn't stopped. The volume of games hasn't stopped. We are in an international break now. 14-0 win for France, a goal for San Marino and Ireland doing themselves a favour by losing rather than winning. That's how football works these days. Anyway, with the Euros approaching, Ollie, Stu, want to get your thoughts on uh, major tournaments in particular this Euros coming up. Stu, how are you how are you feeling about it? Looking forward to it. I've, um, I think we've, we've touched on in previous podcasts kind of um, how we're not really bothered about the qualifying, but when it comes to the tournament, I'm all in. Um, love that kind of festival of football feel. Um, I don't know how the players will feel getting the end of this season and having much energy left, to be honest. It feels like the football hasn't stopped. Um, Whereas obviously England have qualified now. We're going to see the best of Jude Bellingham um, at the Euros. Your fingers crossed he stays fit, uh, which I think hopefully he will. And hopefully we can can go one better and win this time. Um, Yeah, I always look forward to the tournaments. It's kind of... It's kind of a marker in history, isn't it? You, you, I, I don't know about you, but I always think back in my life and buy tournaments. <laughs> That's it every every two four years. Um, so yeah, looking forward to it. Mate. Should be a good one. Fantastic, Ollie. What about you? This one's so this one coming up is going to be in Germany. How do you feel about Germany hosting the Euros? It feels like it's quite soon after them hosting the World Cup, isn't it? Um, it hasn't been that long. What was it? Fourteen years. Um, but. It's a great country, isn't it? It's, there's so so much already there. There's so much football infrastructure there. It's it's a brilliant place to to experience football. Just recently, obviously, got back from there myself. Had a had a wonderful time. Um, ate loads of sausages and stuff. And I think you can't really you can't really argue with that, can you? It's just a brilliant place to, to experience football. Um, so yeah, it's exciting. But it does feel like it's 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 been very soon uh, since the World Cup was there. Just, just on that World Cup, I was uh, I was due to go. There was there was three of us saving my money up to go. The uh, 2006 World Cup in Germany, there was me, a uh, lad called Mark Shields and Greg Hamlin. And at the time they went and had the, the fantastic tournament and I, I chose to go to New York with uh, an ex-girlfriend. It says a lot about me, that, doesn't it, rather than going to World Cup. So my biggest regret in life, I would say. Are you going to make up for it this time round, Stu, by uh, maybe, maybe making an appearance? <laughs> no, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that uh, 2030 World Cup me in America. I've, I'm kind of putting, you know, seven years down here, and what will I be then? 44. Hopefully, we can um, 
we can get HFR to a level where we're like send people over to cover it. That would be the absolute dream, wouldn't it? Um, drinking lovely, lovely cold beer in Mexico. Yeah, let's 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 try that. Uh, it's got to be it's got to be up there with like the Aztec has got to be up there with one of the best stadiums in the world and one that everyone's got to go to if they haven't already. Yeah, it's a bucket list, isn't it? It's a uh, What's the capacity? I think it's in the nineties, isn't it? Maybe it's even the, the early hundreds, to be honest. But it's uh, it's synonymous, obviously, with Maradona's hand of God, um, real historic stadium, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. Is. Ollie, you got you you've obviously travelled quite a lot for football, you know, non-league, following following Newcastle as well as you know just a bit of bit of football tourism. Ever ever fancied a major tournament or got your eye on one coming up? Um. Again, I think probably similar to Stuart. I think twenty thirty is the focus. Really, I've never, I've never been enough of an England fan to to warrant spending that kind of money on it. When, especially when when I was in my pump, so to speak, when I was when I was going quite a lot, uh, Newcastle were in Europe like regularly, you know. So I couldn't justify um, going to a, a Euro, like an international tournament and, and spending that money that I could be spending on on watching Newcastle in Europe. So not really something that's that's massively been on my bucket list. But I think the the Mexico. Canada and USA World Cup is definitely something that, that I'd like to think about going to. Um, just in a in a sort of enjoying a capacity rather than as an England fan. In fact, I'd probably like avoid an England game if I could. Uh, well, I was just thinking that because, I mean, with the Euros, I feel like because it's our, you know, European counterparts, there's a bit more of a bit more of a rivalry there and you do tend to get behind England during the tournaments, even if, you know, the three of us tend not to be big international football fans you know, like during standard international breaks like we've got now. But I wonder whether there's just a little bit more variation at the World Cup where it sort of doesn't matter who you go and see. Yeah. You just turn up at a game and there's so many like great sets of fans there. You can almost just forget about being an England fan and become either just a football fan or just join the Argentinians or (laughs) join the Peruvians and just like get on on with their party. I think a lot of that's to do with culture, isn't it, as well? It's just hand-in-hand with all of these different cultures from all around the world. When we're in Europe, we're, we're, you know, I'm not saying there's not a difference in culture between us and the Germans and us and the, the Spanish and stuff, but we are very westernised, all of us, I suppose, whereas when you're playing against the likes of, or when you're watching the likes of Argentina, some of the African sides as well, it it's just adds to the excitement, doesn't it? It adds to the, the atmosphere. We've all got different ways of, of behaving during football matches as well, different sounds and different, like, environments and that sort of thing. So I think that really adds to um adds to the, the glamour of it really and, and how interesting and how captivating it can be. I, I think just on that, Ollie, the sounds I was just gonna mention there, what I love is seeing the different reactions of the crowds. Ooh. Different songs, how yeah. how they um, react during the game. You know, you kinda of, you watch the, the South American fans and it doesn't matter if they score. The kind of the levels stay the same throughout, don't they? It's a bit of a bit of a festival in that in that game. Um but that's what they are at these tournaments, aren't they? The, the kind of festivals of football. And um, yeah, for, for me, I would be going to, to enjoy everything else other than the football as well. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the fan parks and the local cuisines and or bars and, and all, all this sort, all sort, all sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I think as I get older and the kids get older, it's definitely going to be starting to put down markers in tournaments, I think. Definitely. I mean, I, I have actually, I sort of told a little bit of a lie there. I have actually been to a, um, an international tournament game before. I went to uh, Romania v Bulgaria, Euro 96, it's in James's Park. So it doesn't really feel like a, 
it, it was too different because it was sort of home stadium, wasn't it? I, I'm lucky enough that I get to go every week and um, have done most of my life. So it didn't really feel like it was that different, apart from the likes of uh, Stoichkoff and Hadji and stuff. Then, uh, it gave us a chance to watch those. those. But other than that, really, it was just a, a standard game. It was no real. It wasn't that different. I went to like the Euro Park and stuff beforehand. Euro Fest was on at the time, um, and that was quite good. It was interesting, but even that was sort of Lindisfarne were performing. It wasn't long after Alan Hull had just died, so it was um, it was more of the same of what I was experiencing anyway. Generally through football and stuff, so it was it wasn't as different as maybe going to a, a in a way uh, tournament maybe. Have, just have a guess here. I've just had a look, right? Have a, have a guess what the attendance was at St. James's for that uh, Romania-Bulgaria game. Oh, 34,000? 90, 19,000. Was it? It's, uh, I, I I read somewhere recently, I don't know if it was covered on a different podcast, but the the attendances away from Wembley weren't that great. And I think it's something um, that needs looked at, you know. So I, I know, obviously, England have got... Um, is it the Euros in 2028, yeah? Yeah. That's right, isn't it? So, there's, there's well, some... some... Island, isn't it? Aye, so, so it's UK-based. So, I don't know if you've noticed, but in, in New Zealand, also when the women's football was on, um, in Australia as well, the attendances weren't sellouts all of the time. I mean, this happens, right? It's like, I think there needs to be some kind of strategic thinking around how tickets get distributed, because if the ticket prices are, are, aren't at the correct level, you're not going to attract the, the, the people to Romania against Bulgaria at St. James's Park, are you? It's just not yeah. going to happen. I suppose we've seen yeah. Saudi Arabia, the, um, the Morocco, was it? I think the yeah. South Korea as well. South Korea, sorry, aye. And then there was a really low attendance there, wasn't it? And the... Yeah, you're I think some, some of it's going to come down to like the appeal of if not the if not the nation slash club, whatever the situation is, but nation in this instance, or whether there's a couple of players in particular that that are a draw. I remember going to when the Olympics was on. I remember going to watch a couple of games and went to see Brazil because Neymar was playing, not thinking I'd ever get a chance to like wasn't likely to get a chance to see him otherwise. And that was a decent experience, and there was quite a there was a few Brazil fans around, but basically it was it was just people going to see Neymar really. You know, a couple of other, couple of other Brazilians. So when you get, a, you know, all, all respect for them, but when you get Bulgaria, Romania, they're probably not going to travel in that great numbers, and the draws just not as, not as high. So I think you're right. There has to be some sort of, you know, like incentive to get the get the numbers up. The, the, the thing is, really, isn't it? 100%. You know, and the thing is, when you think of the the financial burden these countries take on in order to bid for these events, right? So the hard work's been done. Like the, the the ticket pricing should be the least of the worries, but they get it wrong so often. It it should be at a level where, you know, it should be the local schools going. It it should be the youth clubs, the 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 younger generation from the football clubs in the region. That that's who should be going to the game, and there's more than enough to be filling them them seats here for, for yeah. you know, ten ten pound five pound a ticket. Well, that's it. If if there's if there's nine, only nineteen thousand in a thirty six thousand capacity stadium. You're not losing anything by giving those tickets away for free anyway. You're going well, to... Yeah, run up the interest. And you may get sales and stuff from it and things like that as well, making you so... And the, 100%. The if, you, if you think of the resources committed by the UK to win that 2028 Euros, like it peels into significance of the ticket pricing being that low down. Like it doesn't... It's not about that. You'll, you'll, you'll make economic gains through having people in the cities anyways. So it's, it's like... 
just make the tickets cheap, man, for fuck's sake. There is a wider point as well, though, that like we're probably at this stage now where obviously Germany have got one coming up, UK and Ireland have got one coming up, and then you've got USA, Canada, Mexico. They're three countries or groups of countries where the infrastructure is pretty much already there because particularly well, in Germany and the, in the UK because of the leagues and there's so much money in the leagues that we've just got all these stadium. The US, partly because of the MLS, but I imagine there's just so much investment from the other sports as well. So they've got tons of um, tons of stadiums. It, it's harder for other countries to bid when their leagues haven't got as much money flowing through. So the, the grounds aren't, you know, sort of comparable. So actually for others, to, they're going to have to invest more to get their stadiums up to spec in order to bid. So actually it's sort of the UK, Germany are probably at an advantage in that sense because there's so much money existing in the football um, in the football leagues that the stadiums are fine. So it's really just the bid that they need to put in. It's not even, they don't have to like build anything new really. So actually yeah. we're probably going to get into the situation where the, the amount of people that can host is going to be even more limited than it ever has been. Yeah. It's interesting <clears throat> that you say that actually. I mean, just talking about the UK, for example, we, um, I featured an article in issue five of EHFR, I think. Dig it out, it'll be free on the on the website. Um, about Plymouth and the, the, the difficulty they got into through bidding for through the bidding process really, and that was all about um money men deciding to bid for Plymouth as a as a place to host a um a tournament. Putting lots of money into it at the, initially and then when the World Cup wasn't or the I think it was the, I can't remember if it was the Euros or the World Cup, um when it wasn't um set in England then obviously they lost out on that and they just pulled all their money out and left Plymouth to, to suffer, really, and it took them about six or seven years to get over that. Um, so it's, there's obviously a lot of people in, in these in these places who are looking for a quick book as well um, and, and just trying to make money, and they're not really interested in what's going on in these countries and things like that. So I think that needs to be looked at as well. But the wider problem with that is that FIFA are, are going to do what FIFA are going to do, aren't they? So... I think a great case study of this is um, it's obviously the South African World Cup, isn't it? They, they obviously, they had to build these stadiums from scratch and um, ultimately they were left empty after the World Cup. So it's, it's almost like this World Cup's a roadshow. They just go from, you know, tournament to tournaments. They forget about what's been left in the country. Um, when, you know, the, the, the country who's who's won the bid has got to do this end-to-end as opposed to like what Darren's saying there, you know, the UK and Germany having established infrastructure in place, you know, Germany will have fantastic trains to get around the cities. It'll be seamless for the fans. Um, so in, in that respect, make it affordable for, for each and every community to attend. It brings us on to something we were going to talk about any, anyway, actually, is that there's been, and I don't know whether this is, we assume anything to do with FIFA, they'll, they'll call it development, but it probably means money. This idea of doing a World Cup every every two years rather than every four, um, I'm quite strongly against that for for many reasons, which we we can come on to. But Ollie, what are your what are your thoughts on possibly a uh, a World Cup every two years rather than four? I I absolutely hate the idea as well. I'm I'm with you. It's it's not necessary. Um, it's gonna it's gonna dilute the, the what the World Cup's about. Um, it's too many games as well, and it's. I mean, I say that if if Newcastle were playing every week, you know, I'd watch them. But when it's an international tournament, I think that's so special. I think that's so they come round. They should come round once every four years, and it's something that you look forward to for the full four years, isn't it? And I know the qualifying is a bit 
um, of a drag at times, and I don't often watch a lot of football um, during that period. I don't watch the international breaks much, but you do spend a lot of time looking forward to it. People are saving up to go to these places that they might never have had the opportunity to go to before. How many people went to Qatar? I mean, we've, we can talk about Qatar uh, for a number of reasons, but actually to go there and experience the culture and the people and stuff like that, it's something to really sort of get excited about. Um, it's not somewhere you maybe decide to go for a holiday and stuff. So these things are really important and they're, they're really special. Um, and I think having one more regularly makes it less special. Um, it's my thoughts on it, really. Well, Jenny Infantino has just texted to say shut up there, I think. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, what are, what's your thoughts on it? When Infantino starts sponsoring the podcast, he can have his say. It, <laughs> he's quite expensive. Yeah. <laughs> get him on, get him on. Um, I'm I'm very much a traditionalist when it comes to tournament football. It's So it's not just that I hear the fact that we've been every two years. Um, the fact that it'll throw the stats off, all of the historic stats would really get to us. So, you know, all the greats who've only been able to play two or three tournaments, you know, the greats who've scored nine goals in, in the tournaments they've been able to attend, I think, which is and Ronaldo in, in closer. I think it's maybe his nine or 11, I'm thinking now for some reason. Anyways, them two are leading. Um, if it's a tournament every two years, those stats are going to be shattered, which is uh, annoying. I can't say it's happening, to be honest, for a number of reasons, mainly because... As we can see in the Premier League, a lot of the teams are suffering from injuries at the moment. So the game load is quite intense. And we're seeing that as Newcastle fans. I think I've seen, you know, the ten, uh, Arsenal have got 10 players injured. Man United, something similar. It's it's kind of, uh, the, the way I think about it is, um, you remember playing Tekken when you were younger and you'd be fighting and then the game of the ball, the energy ball would be like, go right down at the bottom. So, so that's where the players are at the minute, right? Then it's going to take these international breaks to get up to the green again. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't make much sense in that respect either, kind of from a, a health uh, disadvantage for the players. But also, is there a need? I, I think I've, I've heard you speak about this before, Thomas. Like, is there a need for this much football? It's because then it'll become a bit wet, it becomes a bit less romantic, doesn't it? No, I agree. Do you think we'll get in a position then? Going back to your first point where when we say now, since records began, when we'd literally have to begin the records again because we changed things so much. Yeah, it's like a, the Premier League edition. It's, it's like a World Cup beat 2028 20, edition forwards. Yeah. Uh, Sad, isn't it? It's like, would, would they change the Olympics to be every two years? Like it's. Well, I think the problem with the Olympics is, again, like actually finding places who are able to host it is actually really hard. And there's probably, when I don't think any of us are educated enough on this topic to talk about it, but the environmental impacts of everybody flying around are probably quite significant as well. And I think something that would need to be considered, just not by not by us because we don't really know what we're talking about, but certainly, certainly, something, we'd, uh, certainly something we'd need to think about. I think that's that's sort of even more so in this, you're talking about all the white elephants and stuff that have been left over from the Olympics and um, and the Commonwealth Games and stuff like that as well. That's that's a huge thing, isn't it? When these countries that haven't got the infrastructure um, in the World Cup in, the, in in football tournaments, but then if you're talking about like um, Olympics and things like that, you've got even countries that have got the infrastructure, like the things that were built for the Commonwealth Games in London, and then that becomes a white elephant itself, doesn't it? West Ham Stadium. If they didn't take that over, then that's another thing that we've got to we've got to think about. O two as well. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. The O two was built for. 
Um, but again, that became something that was just nothing, wasn't it? And it's countries with the infrastructure we've got are still building things for the. I know we're getting off the subject of football, really. Almost talking about the Olympics instead, but um, that just sort of shows you how how difficult it can be for for these countries. I, th- I think it all it all links. So, like, if you, if you look at that twenty thirty World Cup, right? And I think we're talk- we're discussing this before we came on the podcast. Those countries being Morocco, Portugal, and Spain. Um, and as a commemorative match horse, Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay. We talk about carbon footprint, right? Like that's that's going from a different continent. It doesn't <laughs> make much sense. Like, mm. and it's. I think it's a wider thing. Like I, I told you, I said, Darren mentioned it before we came on again about um, it being kind of more political. So like FIFA buying off these countries with you know random matches before this, the, or maybe these the first three matches in the tournament. Just to appease them for the next few years, you know, because they potentially won't get one for the next 20, 20 26 years. Um, but yeah, like, what's the what's the environmental impact of that tournament going to be? Because that that's going to be going forwards. That's going to be the takeaway from these tournaments, isn't it? Right, like the the um, the environment's only going to become a bigger issue. So, you know, what's what's the output of these tournaments creating? Yeah, that is going to come to the fore. I think. I think what should happen is much like when England used to have to go to Australia in the 30s to play the Ashes, is everybody has to sail. I've had a three-month break while the Chileans sail over. You're at the border waiting for the, the tournament to start and you've got these Argentinians with the tops off singing Ali, Ali, Ali on the boats mm-hmm. as they come into Dover. Didn't in one of the earlier World Cups, and I'm, when I say earlier, I'm talking like Uruguay hosting the first. I'm sure somebody missed the World Cup because our boat was delayed. <laughs> like, <laughs> didn't get anything like that anymore, do you? I mean, I think something like that's no. happened in the Cricket World Cup, hasn't it? It's gone on for about six years, hasn't it? <laughs> Finished the day, didn't it? Right. Australians, man. Fuck them. <laughs> All right, let's... Uh, one final question. Same question for each of you uh, before, we, before we move off the World Cup stuff. And we've gone through a lot. But, but who's your who's your dream host? What's your dream World Cup? Stu, I'll start with you. So my dream host is, is literally just just being twenty sixteen would be Brazil. Um, it was probably not the right time in my life to to attend that tournament, but it would have been absolute dream to go there. So like I'm I'm a kid of the the Brazil teams in the nineties and um in early nineties like Ronaldo, uh, Ronaldinho, Rivaldo, Romario loved them. That, that's kind of what's international football is for me so to have been able to go to Brazil and, and go to kind of the Maracanã and, and uh, Sao Paulo and Brasilia all these different cities would have been an absolute dream come true so hopefully before I die there's another one <laughs> um, but yeah I'll not say I'm not too on it too much um, so that would have been my dream but yeah that one's gone so boo hoo any rogue shouts given that one's gone I so like I think the um, 2026 World Cup in America, Mexico and Canada will be phenomenal, to be honest. Like, I'm a, a massive um, massive fan of New York. I love the city of New York. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a global city, right? And, and anything can happen. I'm, I'm a fan of strange things. So, like, New York is the perfect place for that. Um, coupled with Mexico City. I know you've just you've, you've just come back from there, Darren. Like, these, these cities are places you want to experience right you can just stand still and experience a million things in one day um and also you know the, the temperature's great that time of year in america so the weather's going to be great 
the synonymous for setting up fan events, like the, the whole experience will be will be fantastic um, across the the three countries. Um, yeah, so I think going to make a massive effort to try and go to that one. Um, so that's my it's not really a rogue shout, is it? Like three developed countries. I'll try and give you. So like, let's let's give you a bit of a bit of a mental one. Like, what about one in Egypt? What about in the, and they use the pyramids as the goalposts? <laughs> well, we'll take that. We'll yeah. take that. Right. Um, we'll we'll ask for vouch for Mexico City because it's absolutely incredible. However, I wasn't able to go to a game when I was there because the stadium was off. The stadium's off. Sorry, the season was off. But Bad Bunny was playing, so you know, could have went there. Uh, Ollie, who's um, who's who's your shout? Um, I suppose for me, it's, it's very similar line to Stu. Um, but I think one of the things I would say is that for me, it's it's got to be one country. I don't like these joint bids and stuff. I, I, I know you're probably going to talk about this shortly as well, but I, I like it to be. It goes with what I was saying before about the culture and stuff like that. When the, when the World Cup was in South Africa, you know, there was there was the Vuvuzelas and stuff. It was a different sound. It was. It was a different culture. It was a different. Everyone in the stands was wearing like cultural garments and things like that, and it was magic for that reason. I think the South Africa like World Cup was one of my favourites, um, and then they had obviously the Colombian thing and the the, the, the song for it, didn't it? Um, so it was just the whole culture of, of the World Cup being in, in one country. Um, is what it's about for me. It's about the romance and about the culture and about all of those sorts of things. And I think that gets diluted a little bit when when you have it in lots of different places. So yeah, I, I do agree with Stu that the Mexico, USA, and Canada World Cup is going to be special. But at the same time, I would like it to be in one place. I would South America for me is is, is football, um, and it's it's sort of this idea. Like I would love for it to be in Argentina, um, Buenos Aires, like a, a Maradona theme throughout the World Cup, um. And that sort of thing. And also, also, oh, the dogs away. And also, somewhere like Italy as well. I'm going to stop. Is that because it's called the dog Maradona and it's just reacting? The the um the, the thing about the World Cups, it's, it's kind of the footprint it leaves behind, right? So that Italian Italian ninety is is the World Cup people think of, isn't it? So to go go back to Ollie's point, and uh, now he's back from beating his dog up um, <laughs> and jumping in, but. That, that Italian ninety, mate. You're, you're looking to recreate memories of Italian ninety. Well, maybe that's it. I, I think my my earliest experience. Obviously, I was alive for the um, Mexico eighty six, um, but I don't remember anything about it at all. Um, I was only three, so the first the first World Cup I can really remember is 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 Italy, Italian ninety, um, and it was so. Everything about it's just what I've taken. That's been the World Cup for me. So um, that's what it was about, and it was special. It was it was very Italian. There was an Italian deli around the corner for me. I've talked about this before as well. That um, had like a bottle of wine shaped like the the World Cup on the table and stuff. And and he said once the if Italy win the World Cup, he's going to share it with all the customers. He must have only had about three customers because it was really normal size of a bottle of wine. But anyway, just remember stuff like that. And I remember Pavarotti, and I remember Nessun Dorma and. Um, how special that was, and I remember Des Lynham, and it was just it was magical, um, and it was my first experience of a World Cup. So I suppose I've got the romance of that in the back of my head all the time when I think about World Cup. So yes, there is a bit of that in it. Um, you know, I can't see it being in Italy for a long time anyway. But I, I'll stick with Argentina. I'll stick with Argentina. Well, it's actually 
a lovely little segue into the next uh, next bit of the show that I wanted to bring up because Brazil, Argentina, who we've you know we've mentioned both of those traditional footballing nations in the last last few minutes of the discussion. They played each other on Tuesday in qualifying, and I know they played each other quite a lot because you know there's a Copa America qualifying, Copa America itself, plus all the World Cup qualifying to go through that group. So they do play each other quite a lot. Um, but they've, they've been and they've maintained themselves as you know sort of the dominant forces in South American football for uh, wait since time memorial really. But the big question is, Stu, I'll start with you on this one. Who are you following? Who, who, who's your team traditionally? Traditionally, it's uh, it's Brazil. Um, well, there's two two ways to think about this, right? So, kind of internationally in in footballer base, there would be Brazil. So, I'm more across the Brazilian footballers and and what Brazil do internationally and in their fixtures. Not so much Argentina. Um, Argentina, like I love their um, home football clubs. So, I'm a big fan of Boca Juniors. Like I like, I, I, there's something about that football club that just Resonates, um, so I like Boca Juniors from Argentina. However, yeah, Brazil. I've, I've, I'm, when I was younger, I had Brazil shirts. Um, Ronaldo on the back. So the, the first World Cup I can remember would be um, the '94 World Cup, um, and it would be obviously the final, the penalty shootout, and, and the being the Dunga, Tafarel and goal, and all these sorts of memories. Um, and then through to the '98 World Cup, when it was all the, the Ronaldo um, situation in the in the final, and yeah. Just that team, man. That 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 Brazil team. There was no weaknesses from from back to, back to front. Um, so I've always followed them. Even kind of when the the players leave their home country and go into Europe, I was kind of the kid who bought world soccer and was always always across all the transfers, so I could update me champ man or one or two with the latest transfers. You know, that's kind of the, the anorak that I was. So always been Brazil based. Um, you know, when it comes up to Brazil Argentina, I'm always Brazil. Because for me, Argentina, that, that rivalry is still there with England. So I, I still feel like that's relevant as well. Not not going to support Argentina based on that. But the only thing I really have any fond memories with in Argentina is kind of the shirts. I, I do like the shirt, but I would never ever buy it. It's an absolutely iconic shirt, mind. Ollie, who's there? Where, where do your loyalties lie? Or what are your... I think the game, like going back to Italia 90, my, my memory of, of Italia 90 was sort of enhanced by by Argentina, really. They beat Brazil themselves, didn't they? In the, either the quarter final or the last 16. Quarter, eh, last 16, I think. Um, there was controversy. Like, I can't remember the controversy at the time. Um, but obviously, looking back on it and stuff, there was all that stuff about um, the, the water bottles being spiked with tranquilizers and stuff. You know, uh, Brazil had, like, had a go at uh, accused um, Argentina of doing. But I, um, Argentina being part of that World Cup and, and that was sort of, my memory of Argentina was sort of quite positive. Obviously, if I'd been a little bit older and I remember 86, I might not think the same, but um, I just, yeah, I just loved loved watching Argentina play. It was one of the most boring finals I've ever seen, but you know, it was, I, I wanted them to win. That's a, that's a great point as well, is the style of football, right? Like, Brazil and Argentina play vastly different styles of football. You've got kind of Argentinian who are the bastards. They'll kick the grandmother and, and punch the dog to win a game. In Brazil, I like this beautiful Joga Benito style. You know, it's kind of style over... Um, really, uh, their fans wouldn't say this because they, they definitely want to win every single game. 
but it's kind of style over um, result, isn't it? And, and they do things a certain way. That, that's a massive thing for me. I do wonder, do you think that's still do you think that's still the case? I mean, there's still like there's a lot of and always has been a lot of like unbelievably technically gifted players in Argentina. Um and I think a lot of the a big reason that a lot of the Brazilians do well in the Premier League, um, and other European leagues, but definitely in the Premier League, is actually there's like they've got a lot of steel and the hard. Like yeah. so there's not that sort of you know, like flicky fancy football throwing themselves around. So do you think those styles still play out now? And, and probably to a lesser extent, but I, I, I do I do think they're brought up in that manner. So I'd say Argentina and Brazilian footballers are streetwise. That's where they learn, right? They're like very much learning their craft on the streets and in, in the where they where they live. They're not going to fancy four G pitches, are they? Like it's it's very much kind of uh, grassroots, no concrete roots. Let's call it. Um, so you've, you've got to kind of handle yourself in a certain manner, I suppose, when you're coming up against a rival favela. <laughs> like, that's how it is, isn't it? So you, you've you've got this kind of um, exterior, which which helps you when you come to the Premier League and to other European leagues, which, you know, that's the Norwegians aren't going to have, for example, you know, just a kind of a, a, a no-experience example just to throw out there. But I kind of think it's, it's just the essence, the way that Brazil plays, is slightly different to Argentina. Like, like listen, I, I love some of the Argentinian players that they produce, like Raquel May, one of my favourite all-time players. What, what a great player. Um, and Brazil don't really produce those visionary number 10s. The, the, their number 10s are a bit different, aren't they? They're a bit flashy. Um, whereas Raquel May always had an end product. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's quite a complex argument when you, when you start thinking about it, isn't it? But... I do agree that when they do come to Europe, they've got this base level of being a hard bastard. Probably Argentinian more so. So from the keep our through to the straight, I feel like they've got that as, as ground level. Whereas Brazilians, maybe Zai, the they, they defensive midfielder, the midfield, your, your Gilberto Silvas, your Dungas, Bruno's got a bit of steeliness about him. Um, so yeah, probably Argentinian a little bit more. I think when you think about Brazil as well, you think of those players, don't you, like Edmundo and Romario, that are like absolute lunatics. I do like that as well. I do like a lunatic in the squad. Um, and they've both had that. So quite similar. Let's just say they're both similar. They've got they're both hard bastards and they both play football in what I would consider the right way. It must win and in a beautiful manner. Well, I think there's a sort of, and this is probably just a South American thing, where... It probably goes into like socioeconomic arguments where like a lot of the footballers come from nothing, where they have like they live in complete poverty, and they're like fighting for their lives to get out. I think it's maybe slightly different in the UK, where kids are pulled out at age five and then like they're into the sort of like finest facilities. So I think South America is always going to produce different footballers because of those socioeconomic conditions as much as anything else, which I think is an interesting way to look at it. I guess it's the same as like if you looked at cricket, the way that Indian fast bowlers or spin bowlers are always going to be different because they play in the middle of nowhere and they don't get pulled out of, you know, schools to play, you know, like county cricket from, from young ages. It's that same it's that same argument. Um Ollie, I'm gonna move it over move I'll move it back to you. Who's your you said Argentina, although I'll let you pick the Brazilian if you want. 
there's always arguments about who the greatest is, and it tends to come down to Maradona and Pelé. However, I'm going to broaden the pool a bit. Who who's your greatest? Who's your who's your favourite? Argentinian. I mean, it's got to be Maradona, hasn't it? But I think if I, if I if I'm not allowed to say Maradona, um, you someone, say like, someone like either maybe again going back to Italia ninety, uh, Claudio Canigia, or um, I think Javier Zanetti. Like <clears throat> what a player! Like I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of Inter Milan at all, but what a player! Like like one of the best I've ever seen. Um, Stuart, Stuart, I'll give you one one word on a Brazilian. Brazilian favorite Brazilian. Um, I'm I'm torn, right? So kind of all nine is, is would be the the, the answer. Ronaldo, absolutely loved Ronaldinho was period at Boston. I think I kind of feel like it's understated now, given what Messi's produced. Um, but when Ronaldinho was at Brazil, um, and subsequently playing for Brazil at the same time, was uh, was something to be seen. Like some of the things he was doing on in, in the new camp was phenomenal. Um, things I hadn't seen on the pitch before. So he was kind of enhancing my experience of what football was. But if I, as kind of what I was when I was younger, centre-half, I used to love Lucio that played at, at, um, for Brazil, who was an absolute unit and was hard as fuck and played football in the right manner. Good defend, tackle. He was a great passer of the ball and led by example. So I, I loved him. Fantastic. I'm going to pull in a really niche segue here. Lucio, one time... By a Leverkusen centre half. I'm going to move us into the final section of the pod to a little bit of club football. Leverkusen running uh, running by Munich, very very close at the top of top of the Bundesliga. We've also got a few surprise packages across uh, across the other big leagues. So Girona uh, in La Liga. We can even say Tottenham in uh, in a Premier League. Nice in in League One. Lots of surprises. Oli, I'll let you have the pickier leagues, but do you fancy a fancy a bit of an upset or a bit of a bit of a dark horse to come through in one of the leagues? Um, I I don't. I mean, talking about like Nice being up there, you know, you've got the you've got the usual suspects anyway, haven't you? You've got PSG who I can't see past, and you've got Monaco as well, um, sort of who've come back into it the last couple of years, um, and then behind them is I think it's Lille, isn't it? So <laughs> I just can't see past PSG in that one. Um, and I think obviously the, the likes of Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, and Barcelona are, are too strong um, in Spain for for Girona to sort of to continue that. Good luck with them. I hope they finish sort of top three, top four, um, top three in France and top four in Spain. In England, um, I, I just can't do it to myself to say that I think Spurs are going to do anything. I think Spurs are Spurs are Spurs, um, and I think they'll continue to be Spurs. I love Big Ange. I love the job he's done there. They're playing some really different football. And I think considering they've lost um, probably the best player they've had for, for years and, and someone who scored so many goals for them, um, they've replaced him really well with, with, uh, with both Madison um, and, and sort of one or two of the others, the defenders. Um, Van, what's he called? Van, uh, I can't think of his name now. Um, I think they've done really well, but I think it's going to be a case of will they get in the top four? Nah. Nah. Fair play. Well, you've left you've left Germany there, so Stu, I let you I let you pick up Germany. What are your What are your thoughts about the the situation at the top in Germany as it stands, or even at the bottom if you want to pick up Union, uh, Union Berlin? 
I'm, um, just before I, I talk about that, I just want to touch on Girona being top of the, the La Liga, right? So yeah. I've got a friend friend in New Zealand who um, is a massive Real Madrid fan and a very royal one as well. He hates Catalan. They hate culture in the region. So he's the opposite of kind of how he would feel, right? But um, I, I, I like ribbing him about Girona being top of the league and uh, he's very conscious of them being there. He's really upset about it. So every time that I go to football on a Monday, I'm just kind of, yeah, Girona won again. They, they put together a good winning results. He got Pablo on there. He's, he gets really touchy about it. So that's uh, that's nice for me. Um, yeah, the Bundesliga is an interesting one, mate. It's, I love what Leverkusen are doing. Um, what I love most about it is is that it's Xabi Alonso and kind of the how he feels and what he thinks about football is, is kind of playing out at Leverkusen. Um, you see those training videos that get posted Kind of on Twitter, right? People like go well over the top to the extreme. It's like, oh, look how good Xavi Alonso is teaching, passing, and training. It's like a, it's like a video of Xavi Alonso pinging a ball fifty yards to one of his players. It's, it's not that relevant really to what they're doing on the pitch. But I love Xavi Alonso as a player. Um, like him as a bloke as well. From what I've read, I think he's a really uh, intelligent bloke. He's obviously passing on the right sort of. Uh, mentality to his squad as well. So to, to compete in Bundesliga, you've got to you've got to be Bayern Munich. Really, that's that's what you've got to do to to win Bundesliga. Um, whether or not they've got the strength and depth to do that, I'm not too sure. But enjoying them, running them close at the moment. Um, obviously, at Bayern, you've got the the hurricane factor who seems to be touching everything, and it's turning into a goal or an assist. Um, and having seen Dortmund play Newcastle twice this season. I'm not too sure they're going to be challenging this season, to be honest. Um, so I can see it being between either Leverkusen extending this good run they've been on and being able to to, to do this throughout uh, the campaign in the second in the in the latter part of the season and next year, um, or Bayern will just steamroll it again, just with the the, the the squad depth that they've got and the, the talent at the front end of the pitch with with Sunny and, and, and Kane. Um, just I'm just. Yeah, it's it's like well done Leverkusen, but the numbers that Harry Kane's putting up at the minute, I can't see Bayern not overtake them at some point this season. Uh, I think the only thing with Leverkusen as well, <clears throat> as much as I'd love them to do it, love Xabi Alonso to do it, is I think they've used about 14 players or something ridiculous. They're just like, they never change their starting 11. As soon as that starts to get disrupted, like who knows? Um, but we'll we'll see. Um, but we've had, a, we've had a good chat for a little while now. I'm going to finish the podcast by reading out a couple of quotes from this book that I found at the Acton Book Exchange called Do I Not Like That? One-liners, wise words, gaffes and blunders from the world's greatest football managers. A 442 publication. Can't find the date on it, but it's it's not new. I'll tell you that. 1999. So we've got a... Good year. You're going to have to cast your minds a a fair bit back for this one. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read you a couple of quotes, see if you can guess who said it. Now, this is from 1999, so there's probably some questionable content in this. Disclaimer. Not my words. So who said, one thing I've learned about being at Spurs is the word crisis. George Graham. George Graham. Who do you reckon, Stu? Um, I think it's someone controversial. Teddy Sheringham? Not that controversial, but... Unfortunately not. Jerry Francis. 
Jerry Francis. Lovely. Yeah, I would never have thought that. Tremendous bonus. Oh, hi. Okay, next one up. I don't need a thick skin. I've not been caught in bed with any strange women. Which well-known Premier League football manager from the 90s and 2000s said that? Don't need thick skin. Sounds like something that like, someone like Terry Venables would say. Would he, he'd have been at Leeds at the time, wouldn't he? Or, I want to say Terry Venables. Either him or Debbie McGee. <laughs> I was thinking, I like that, that Cockney feels well, with Harry Redknapp. It's down. Harry Redknapp. Is it? Aye. And then, in a final one, unbelievable that this has even been published, but you said it. <laughs> Women should be in the kitchen, the discotheque, and the boutique, but not in football. Stephen Evans. Is that a, <laughs> is that a manager? Is it? It's a manager. Was he? Was he nineteen ninety nine? Was he a current Premier League manager at the time? Was he? Or? You, you said it in nineteen eighty nine. Said it in nineteen eighty nine. Oh, sound like the sort oh, of thing. Cluffy in it. it. Doesn't sound like the sort of thing. Cluffy would say he was a bit of a socialist, wasn't he? A bit forward thinking. Nineteen eighty nine. Alright. It says and this is I quote New Man Ron Atkinson. So <laughs> Yeah. Could have got that to be here for thought a bit I longer. Mean, it's no wonder that somebody's given this book away and left it at the train stations. But there we go. <laughs> anyway I'll probably recycle that rather than uh, rather than hand it back. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that should be in circulation anymore. But let's end it there, lads. It's been been lovely to chat. Uh, yes. I hope you're enjoying the international break. We'll pick things up again, maybe in a in a few days to chat to chat again at Strawberry Corner about Newcastle, uh, and then in maybe in a week's time we can uh, we can pick up on all things world football again. Um, but until then, uh, let's say goodbye to everyone and lovely to see you. Thanks all. See you later. Bye bye. Thanks everyone. <laughs>